the uh, Old Testament reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, and it can be found on page 74. And it's entitled, The Ten Commandments. <clears throat> and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And the New Testament reading is taken from the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, and it's chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. And that can be found on page 978. <clears throat> it's entitled, Jesus Anointed by a Sinful Woman. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose it would be the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came to your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, 
loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. Thank you. Need to adjust this because. <laughs> All right. Um, so, uh, Kath is going to come and share her reflections on uh, those passages. Um, let's pray for Kath as she comes. Lord God, your Bible teaches us that you are a jealous God. But it's a phrase which maybe we shy away from. As Kath comes to unfold the meaning of that phrase, we pray you would be with her, speaking through her to us. Let us hear your voice clearly through what she has to say. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. So if you had to put emotions in a category of good or bad emotions, most people would put jealousy on the bad side. Living in a relationship with somebody who is jealous is horrible. Mistrust, suspicion, allegation, accusation are destructive and dysfunctional. All too regularly, people die at the hands of those who are consumed with jealousy. How then does a jealous God fit into this? When I was thinking about this, it struck me how here is a declaration of a jealous God, yet a few lines down, we didn't quite get to it, but we are commanded not to covet. And what about envy? What's the difference? When we covet, we long to possess something that belongs to somebody else. We can feel envious, resentful, discontented, often with an underlying sentiment of malice and hostility. Often we compare ourselves to others and it can lead to these emotions. Recently, our series on giving addressed the power of thankfulness in these situations and I'd strongly encourage you to listen again online if you didn't get it the first time. What about jealousy though? Is that not more or less the same? Whereas envy looks at what others have and may sometimes, sometimes Jealousy can be used in that context too. Jealousy may more be about what is already owned and a desire not to lose it. Often a less negative connotation may be that of jealously guarding something. The idea of something that is valuable to us, that we look after carefully and are fiercely protective over whether that's jealously guarding time that we have with our friends or family, or jealously guarding precious objects from those who may take them. 
In the Bible, the words from je- for jealousy and zealous have the same root. God is passionate about protecting what is rightfully his. This morning, we're going to think more about the first few verses of Exodus 20. To have no other gods before me, not to make an image in the form of anything, anywhere, not to bow down and worship them, for God is a jealous God. But that's not where it starts. The commandments are given to a people already in relationship with God. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel belongs to God as his special possession. And before God commanded anything of them, he declares who he is. I am the Lord your God. No explanation necessary. His sovereignty is absolute. And because God is the Lord, the eternal source of being and power, he has an incontestable right to command. He also declared what he had done for them. He had brought Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and liberated them. And therefore they had an obligation in gratitude to obey him. By redeeming them, God acquired a further right to rule them. They owed him their freedom. The comparison is apparent. God is jealous for us because we are precious to him. Through Jesus, we today are declared redeemed, God's special possession. We belong to him. We are children of God, owing a debt that we can barely fathom. It goes on, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Then and now, God expects exclusivity and purity in our relationship with him. It's not no gods before me, so we can line up several other gods after him. Some translations have it as no other gods besides me. Not just the top slot, but the only slot. As Chris mentioned in his talk a few weeks ago, if God is not Lord of all... He is not Lord at all. And idols are not on. In the book of Romans, it describes how if we simply look, we can clearly see God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. Yet despite this, people exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. In some Bible translations, these are referred to as graven images, a carved idol or representation of God used in an object of worship. I don't know who was here last week, but Beth used this uh, rather powerful imagery of God as a mother bear in defence of her cubs, found in Hosea. And at that time, despite God's command to acknowledge no other gods before him and to not form idols, Israel had done so. They had become too comfortable and proud and forgotten God. And like a mother bear, jealous of her cubs, 
God raged against them, jealous of his sovereignty. Although we might automatically think of ancient golden calves or similar, other gods could include any person or place or thing that we hold to be more important or as important as God, and that which is given the glory which God is due. Whatever is loved or feared or delighted in or depended on more than God, we make an idol of. And God is jealous of anything we place on his throne, anything that wears his crown. And by definition, any gods or idols we make for ourselves will be less, be poorer, be worse than the almighty God. They will let us down. They will not be able to achieve the role that we thrust upon them. Of course, this commandment describes not just the images of things on earth, but in heaven too. This declaration has, preve- excuse me, this declaration has prevented the direct portrayal of God in many churches throughout the ages. So why does God say that? If we try and represent God, we simply won't be able to. God is not reducible to a set of statements or containable in a set of images. Isaiah 40 says, who can compare to God? I recently heard someone describe that idolatry is where we make God in the image we want him to be, that which is convenient to us and to our purposes. And in that vein, it was fascinating listening to Beth last week on how, on a survey, people tended to believe that God would essentially look like themselves. God is incomparable to images, except one. Colossians 15 says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, If we want to see what God is like, we need only look at Jesus. Perhaps, though, the most subtle and yet most common form of idolatry involves us. When we are proud or self-righteous or stand in judgment, we make a God of ourselves. We say, I will not be saved in God's way, I will make my own road to heaven. I will be my own redeemer. I will enter heaven by my own strength. I will be glorified. I will be the judge. When we boast in our own strength, saying, I can do all things, without adding, through Christ who strengthens me, it declares that we are the ones wearing the crown. Not only is it idolatry, but we and others we declare as gods are burdened by this. The crown is too heavy. The throne is too big for anyone other than God. It is a challenge to us all to consider what or who is wearing the crown in every aspect and every situation of our lives. Verses 4 and 5, you shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything on heaven, 
in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The crux of the matter is worship. The question is not whether we worship, but what we worship. God's jealousy is ignited at the prospect of worship directed anywhere other than where it should be. He is jealous of our worship because it belongs to him alone, because he has redeemed us, because he is God. It is his glory, not ours. So what does worship mean anyway? The word comes from an old English word with the same root as worthiness, an acknowledgement of worth. In a dictionary, you may find various definitions such as reverence, adoration, thanksgiving, exaltation, veneration. But my favourite is a not very contemporary definition from Webster's Dictionary in 1828. Worship is to honour with extravagant love and extreme submission. Worship is to honour with extravagant love and extreme submission. I would challenge anyone to come up with a better picture to embody that definition than the woman in our second reading. Kneeling in extreme submission in both body and spirit, she honours Jesus with costly, heartfelt, extravagant love. She worships without saying a word. Who would you be in this story? Are you a bit like Simon, offering a certain level of invitation, a certain level of questioning, but not wanting to invest too much in welcoming Jesus in your life? Making an idol of your own self-importance, your own reputation, your own knowledge and learning, your own judgment, perhaps sanctimonious and proud? Or are you the one who looks only at Jesus, regardless of what others are saying, regardless of what others are thinking, regardless of what you may have done, offering him a declaration of his worth, worship, which may be costly, financially, by reputation or in other ways on your knees in submission before him, exalting him above everyone and everything else, dedicated to living for his honour and knowing the enormity of his transforming forgiveness, love and grace. Who do you want to be? We have a God who guards us jealously as his special possession, but a God who is jealous of his sovereignty and the worship that should be his alone. As we afford him the place on his throne, as we place the weight of the crown, not on an object of our own imagination, creation or self-importance, 
and place it firmly on the head of the all-powerful, almighty, ever-present, ever-loving God as we honour him with the extravagant love and extreme submission he deserves. Only then can all things align, can the natural order, the supernatural order really, of things be properly established. For he takes the weight of the crown and we stand under the banner of the almighty God, free simply to be children of God. Thank you, Catherine.